0: Welcome to Food Farms and Chefs Radio Show, where we highlight everyone from the top industry leaders to startups and farmers that make it all possible. With Chef Jean Blum and photojournalist Amaris Pollock. Hi, and welcome to Food Farms and Chefs. And I am very, very happy to introduce all of you. One of the co-owners and co-founders of Service Events, Stephen Service, who is joining us. Stephen, welcome to our show. Awesome. Thank you for having me. No problem. Um, so obviously, like, you know, I've, I ran a little bit of a background check-in, and you are not at all unfamiliar with foraging in, in the forest. Right. Um, so that, I thought, was very interesting uh, and something that, I mean— other chefs who who have come on the show have actually for, uh, foraged in the forest, but I'm you're like really into it now. So yep. before I like spoil or anything, um, let our listeners know what your history is and um your for that matter your twins' history is in the culinary industry. Sure.
1: So uh, my twin brother and myself both went to MBIT, which is Middle Box Institute of <laughs> Technology in Jamison, Pennsylvania, and we went there for culinary arts. Um, the only reason why we chose to go to this tech school was because we found out by going there, we got an hour of less school every day. That was kind of our main selling point. And culinary was kind of the same lines where it just sounded like it'd be the most fun. We can go and kind of cook food for half the day, not go to gym class or do things like that. Um, and we just really, really fell in love with it. We had inst- like inspirational chef instructors. It was our first time working together um, kind of taking pride in some of the things that we were doing, which then pushed us to get jobs in the restaurants. Um, before the pandemic started, I worked at a little French bistro called Slate Blue, uh right in Doylestown. And my brother was executive chef of a restaurant called Ardena. And um so we've been doing the restaurant thing for the last, you know, about 12 years or so since we graduated in 2012 uh, 12. And just really kind of falling in love with the farm to table side of it when we uh, worked at a restaurant called the mainland Inn, uh, volunteering on the farm uh, to get a job in the restaurant, doing our stage and getting a job there. And that really opened the doors to just more of the foraging stuff like you were mentioning in the intro um, of just kind of really learning about what the land has to offer and how to work with nature kind of in symbiosis and have the most nutrient dense food and the most delicious tasting food uh, really comes from those kind of practices.
0: Of course. And uh, Gene, uh, who's a fellow Bucks County person. (laughs)
2: Awesome. Well, not only that, but uh, I I think we share uh, friends and a gentleman by the name of Mike McComb. Yes, we do. He was our instructor. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. I I also taught uh, vocational high school for a number of years. I know Mike quite well. He's an amazing guy. Um, Just a a, a friend, a fellow ACF person, just an incredible person. But you know, and growing up in this area, I so appreciate your background. I actually uh I, I used to love Slate Blue for their brunch. I used to go up there and get their pate and and, uh, mm. and just loved it up there. So we walked in many of the common footsteps, but as we were talking, I happened to think the other day I happened to be out early in the morning. I took the dog out, and it's so beautiful that in February I saw the first uh you know, skunk cabbage starting to bloom a little bit. And I was like, oh, it's time to go out and start looking for what the forest has to offer. Yep, daffodils are coming up up right now. Yeah, really really, really cool. But who, I mean, obviously, you'd all just pick up a book and and walk into the woods and and start doing that. It's a little bit more complex than that, especially with, you know, certain types of fungi and stuff like that and what the effects can be. So what was your, who, who took you under their wing And began to show you that.
1: Sure. So we had a guy, uh, his name was Dave Hamillian. He actually owns a little co-op in Hunting Valley called Dave's Backyard Farm. And he was just a food runner at the restaurant I was working at at the time. Just kind of a side job for him. And uh, he took the whole kitchen out actually to just show us how to identify just like edible flowers. And things we started using as just edible garnishes. And that was what kind of first got us introduced to just the world of farming was just picking little edible things you could put on a plate to make it look pretty. And just to add kind of a, an additional story to what we were serving. Um, so that got kind of the interest going. And then from there, I don't know, I mean, you know, Nick and I both have a saying we always talk about like, as human beings, I can't think of anything more valuable to know than the food you can eat that just grows outside. Um, so that became just kind of more of an interest, and then just learning about like how you can cook it and make it taste better, and how anything you forage is going to be the most like nutritionally dense and um, there's kind of a joke in the forage world how people say like, "Oh, how do you eat from you know the woods like it's, it's dirty." And we always kind of look at it. I was like, it's actually the cleanest it can be because humans haven't touched it yet, you know um, so that was that's how we kind of got into it was this guy, Dave, and then just you know we picked up books, started reading a bunch of books about it. Um, I do some of the fungus, but I don't get—I don't get into them if I'm if I'm not a hundred percent sure. I don't even kind of really, uh, you know, take the risk or try those kind of things. Um, we do more of the kind of common ones a lot of people know about, you know, the morels, the chicken of the woods, the hen of the woods, uh, oyster mushrooms, and then I'll forage like reishi and turkey tail to make medicine and stuff like that um, out of them, which is awesome.
0: That's awesome. Well, that-
2: Yes. It sounds like you had a great instructor and, and, you know, obviously you know, what you said, if you're not sure, you're not going to mess with them. Yeah. The consequences are a little severe, um, but things like that. So is, you know, having that background, then now you bring that into your personal kitchen now, but you bring that into your business as well. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, A little bit. Again, we still do a lot of like the forage garnish. I love in the springtime being able to kind of put, you know, fancy edible uh, flowers on plates and just educate people how like, hey, when you're driving down the road, this is that flower that you're probably seeing that you have looked at probably a thousand times, but never really thought twice about it. Um, You know, tapping trees and doing syrup is something we'll incorporate into our menus and stuff like that. Um, we'll do some mushrooms on our menus in the summertime when, you know, they're, they're available. It's tough to, um, so like we, we do a menu every month, we change every month and it's tough to, um, kind of rely on, uh, you're going to find mushrooms or find something in the woods when every time it's kind of a gamble, you know what I mean? So, um, when we find a good harvest of something, it's kind of like a treat, a special treat that maybe people that week will get, or we just kind of eat personally in our house, um, it's more so kind of the business is relying on local farms and people that we can kind of be more predicting of what's going to be available.
0: I, I also saw when I was doing research with you that you have an apiary. Um, so do you harvest like your own honey and, and whatnot? Okay,
1: yeah, no, I don't. Um, we don't have we don't have we don't have anything like that. Um, there's a couple people in the area that we work very closely with to get you know just raw organic honey. Uh, we've tried putting one on our property. My family owns a little uh, 13 acre for like old horse farm. My parents do Airbnb for a living. So it's like an Airbnb property. And then we, you know, we farm it with the garden and we have some sheep and chicken and stuff like that. Um, but we tried to get bees there. It was a thing we wanted to do. Just they were very skeptical about bringing bees to a property. Uh, maybe you lose out on people staying there because their kids are allergic to bees or something like that. Um, it's one thing to have natural bees there when we have flowers and stuff, but it's another thing to purposely bring them. <laughs>
0: and, and have an Airbnb. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs>
0: That makes um, sense. So
1: I would love to, to get into beekeeping. Uh, it's a really, really awesome thing, but we've been blessed to find some really cool people in the area who, who kind of take care of that for us.
0: Yeah. Um, and speaking of farms, part of what got you into this is you, you found online the, um, I've... I'm going to skip, uh, probably mess up the name, but the Worldwide Opportunities Organics Farms. Yes, yes. Um, so how did that come into play with everything that you're doing?
1: So actually, uh, when I volunteered at this farm, it was called Quarry Hill Farm. This is probably back in 2015 or 2016, I think 2015. Uh, I volunteered at Quarry Hill Farm to try to get a job at what was called the Mainland Inn Restaurant. And it was the first farm table restaurant I ever heard of, the first kind of fully organic restaurant in our area uh, quarry hill farm presents the main idea. Kind of idea. Um, and so when I volunteered there, they started telling me about the wolfers, you know, those, they had wolfers on the property. Uh, you know, she's a woofer, he's a woofer, kind of deal. And I was in the same boat as you, like, what is a woofer? And, um, so it's worldwide opportunities on organic farms. They told me back then that it's kind of a way to travel for free. So you offer your work and you get free housing and free food from the farmer a wolf host that you kind of stay with. Um, Back then in 2015, I was 21 years old, and I didn't really have time or money or confidence in myself to go do something like that. Um, I then got a job in the restaurant that day, so I volunteered at the farm, ended up doing a stage in the restaurant the same day. I left with a job offer, never had to go back and volunteer. But um, you know, five or six years later now, when the pandemic came, we find ourselves unable to work and can't really do anything. Uh, We actually watched this documentary called The Biggest Little Farm. It's on Hulu. Uh, Apricot Lane Farm is the farm in California that's based around. But this documentary really, really inspired the two of us. And I kind of turned over to Nick and said, hey, bro, I'm going to look into this wolf program again. And I'm going to see what this is all about. And uh, within five days of watching this this documentary, we uh, interviewed to live in a farm. And we actually were going to go stay for a four month stay. And when we got to the house, we kind of shared this business idea that we had about doing these in-home private events. And uh, the husband especially, he really grabbed onto it. And uh, he's the one who kind of really made this whole thing a reality uh, for us. So going and doing the Wolf experience was like the most life-changing thing we've ever done. I, I recommend it to a lot of people we cook for who have young kids or, you know, kids who don't really know what to do after high school, before college. It's a great thing to kind of go do. Uh, learn to kind of live with other people and to be kind of a house guest and stuff like that. Um,
2: It's just really, really awesome. So that was your intro to kind of the events world that you're doing now, the personal chef program in home events kind of thing uh, that, you know, led to your kind of current business and, but you're very diverse in everything you do, but you know, that whole, uh, and I I don't want to call you a personal chef because you're not that you're doing in-house events. Uh, in-home events and stuff like that. But um, tell us a little bit about that side of the business. Absolutely.
1: I think it's uh, fairly safe to say, you know, we're kind of more private chefs, maybe not in that kind of way. But um, so I did a few of these kind of private dinners for a friend or two of mine. Uh, When the pandemic started, we just couldn't cook, didn't really know what to do. Um, Cooked for a good friend and then cooked for my grandparents, actually, and did these kind of tasting menu style dinners and then went to Maine, didn't really think much about it. Uh, it was something that we weren't really looking to pursue too much. And then when I mentioned it to, to Harold the Farmer, um, that's when the whole thing kind of started to become reality and started to become something that like, hey, we can actually go home and maybe maybe try this and try to get it going. Um, my brother and I both, since we were in high school, you know, all we've ever done is cook and being twins and then being, uh, I you know, your people listening probably can't see, but We're very, very, um, heavily tattooed, you know, both of us are. And so kind of having the twin thing, having the tattoos, both being chefs, uh, we kind of had a reputation already a little bit. And so when we decided that we were going to start doing these in-home private dinners, um, a lot of people almost felt like it was about time. We were going to do something for ourselves and kind of start our own thing. And, um, so we started in, uh, I think October of 2020, was our first dinners, and then we went full full time in March of 2021, um, and we've done nothing nothing since then. And we're constantly growing and constantly getting more and more and doing bigger parties and and more events every year.
0: So take well, a- oh sorry,
2: <laughs> sounds like the the way to build a a promising catering and events industry is certainly you know to start and build that reputation up. Do you have a style besides? incorporating forage foods and wild organic foods uh or is there something that you also specialize in
1: yeah yeah absolutely i wouldn't i wouldn't even say that our specialty is you know incorporating the forage stuff that's more just a hobby of mine that we like doing kind of in our off time when we're walking in the woods we like doing a lot of hiking and if you can find cool things to eat while you're out there it's just kind of a bonus um but our specialty really is 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 being very exclusively uh using only local farms and only using uh like local businesses. So kind of a little example of something um, would be like, it's, it's hard to get really good olive oil. We don't grow great olive oil here in America, but we only use a small business called Altamontes, which is a small town that's family owned um, that we source, you know, things like olive oil and cheeses from. Um, so our specialty is more so knowing where every ingredient we use comes from and then when we come to the events, we educate the guests on the story behind the ingredients, where they're kind of coming from, the farmers that are involved, uh, flavor pairings, health benefits. We Our whole philosophy kind of is food is medicine, and uh, we want to serve kind of the cleanest, healthiest food that we can in a very fine dining sort of uh, attractive kind of way.
0: <clears throat> I like how you said that, food is medicine, because um... – I, you know the the normal cliche is you are what you eat but food is medicine because you know it carries a lot of nutrients you know the the more colors that are involved in what's plated um, raw versus cooked it all kind of is incorporated into what you're taking into your body and how it interacts with what how what we consume interacts with our body to heal us um, to make things uh to make us have energy, to to you know, to give us a, a sound peace of mind. <laughs> so it's, it, I think it's admirable that you you do that and you're teaching people while you're doing that because a lot of people don't know, and I I'm one of them. I don't know what every ingredient does. I know what some of them do, but you know, <clears throat> it would be beneficial for me to. To have you in my home and teach me, you know, what it is that I'm consuming and how it's, you know, positively impacting my my diet.
1: Hey, like um, a really cool thing we saw when the pandemic was first starting, uh, we had a woman ask us on a podcast like this, you know, hey, how was it sourcing the ingredients, you know, whatever, in the summer of 2020. And at that time, we still lived in Maine. So I, I didn't really have, you know, a great answer. But I told her, you know, if I could take a swing at the question. I would tell you it would have been easy, you know, where a lot of people went to the grocery store and saw they had no eggs and started freaking out saying, oh, my God, the whole world has no eggs. Well, chickens didn't stop laying eggs because the pandemic came. You know, a lot of people just don't think to go shop at a small farm or to go look in a different place in the grocery store. So we kind of take it on ourselves to educate people about the other options they have than to just go into these big box stores. And then, you know, the the plethora of just. Additional benefits that you get from buying from people that you know, and buying from small farms, and buying from local businesses. Um, but it's 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 really just trying to show people that there are other options than just you know giant Acme.
0: Yeah, and I we have about a minute left um, before we have to let you go. So if people are looking to bring you into their homes and hire you, I know you have a very busy schedule, but if they want to find you online and hire you to come in and be a private chef and, and, and create a chef's tasting menu for you know a private party that they can throw, how can they get in touch?
1: Sure. Uh, the best way to send us an email to Let's Eat at service-events.com. Service is spelled S-E-R-V-I-S, not C-E. Uh, you'd see how many people have like brain farts trying to kind of understand that. Uh, but our last name is Service. Uh, our website is service-events.com. Our Instagram is you know, Service Events. Facebook is Service Twins Events. Uh, if you Google Service Events at all, you'll find all of these things. Uh, it's just very important to know that it's S-E-R-V-I-S, not C-E. Uh, is kind of the the big thing to know there. But yeah, yeah, all the social medias, our websites, emailing is the way we usually go about booking everything. Uh, But you can find us kind of all over the place.
0: Of course. And um, thank you again for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs.
2: Thank you. Take care, Chef. Thank you. Thank you, sir.
0: To become a sponsor of Food Farms and Chefs and have your business or event promoted on two radio stations in Philadelphia that play on Tuesdays during Drive Time Radio and on a station in New York on Fridays at 1 p.m., you can email us at foodfarmsandchefs at yahoo.com, ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com, or arpolykus at gmail.com. Hi, and welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. And I am very excited to introduce you to Chung Nguyen, who is the operating manager and one of co- the co-owners of Miss Saigon in Philly. Chung, welcome to Food Farms and Chefs. Thank
3: you so much. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Oh, no problem. And I feel like you're definitely in the restaurant right now. I can see one of the uh, photos that's, that's uh, you know, part of the atmosphere.
3: Yes, we are. Yes, I am.
0: Um, so... There's several of you who own Miss Saigon in Philadelphia, and I feel like your mission was, uh, from my research, your mission was to give it a nod to all the females that, you know, have been, in, have been cooking over the years. But also, you know, the theme of your restaurant is street food. So um, before we get into all of that, what, like, what, brought you into this industry and, you know, what is your role, um, in this restaurant and where have you worked before?
3: Um, I'm a, well, I was raised in Lancaster, Pennsylvania for 20 years. Um, I went to, uh, York Technical Institute, um, for business hospitality. Um, and then I did my internship with the Hyde Hotel in Washington, DC. Um, so, <clears throat> Ever since I was 18, I ran my first pizza shop. So I kind of knew that, you know, I liked the business, but I never thought I'd get stuck in it. Um, I thought I was going to be a teacher one day, but I decided not to. Um, and then I went to the food and beverage industry. I learned a lot from the hotel in the Hyatt um, after I graduated, did my internship there, did all the roles from like back of the house to front of the house. And then um, I loved it so much. I, I started off bartending. And then after that, you know, I moved up in the role, became, like, lead bartender, bar manager, um, ran all, like, you know, different bar programs. For about 20 years, I worked in, like, a bunch of different um, restaurants in D.C. Okay. Yeah.
0: And, and I mean, that's, D.C. is a, a difficult area because there's a lot of people that are coming through and, you know, a lot of different, you know, people have different palates. So, I'm sure you you went through, a you know, a very... <laughs> stringent um, upbringing as f- in the hospitality industry. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> so com- coming to Philadelphia, how did you you know come about getting to know Kenny and Dave, who are your and and um, Tommy who are some of your co-owners of Miss Saigon?
3: So, um, yeah. Tommy, uh, is my cousin. Oh, <laughs> uh, so he's the chef. So I've been eating his food pretty much like all my life. Um, uh, most of my life, not all my life, but most of my life. Um, he always loved uh, cooking and he always wanted to please people with his food. Always asking, is your food. Okay. Is the food. Okay. And he ran a food truck. I helped him out in the food truck for a little bit, but I always had my own ventures out there. You know, I was always general manager somewhere. Um, so he introduced me to Kenny, and David. Um, so I met them back in Virginia, where we were, like D.C., Virginia, where we were from. And then uh, during COVID, um, I lost my job. So, and he's like, why don't you come down here and help me run um, Tango, which is one of his karaoke bars in Chinatown. Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? He's like, you know, I'll be here for like a month or two. And next thing you know, it um, two became six months and became here then I met my uh <clears throat> my girlfriend and we have a baby I bought a house. Um congratulations and now a restaurant with him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, you you took on a lot all at once. <laughs> yes I did. Yes I did. <laughs> so I was gonna say right. congratulations for the baby and then you said and Thank house you. and the restaurant and I was like, oh okay, trifold. Congratulations on three fun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um so Miss Saigon, obviously, uh, you know, it's come it's gotten a lot of attention already uh, because it's it's not your atypical like Vietnamese restaurant where you walk in and it's very like um, one floor tables and just, you know, some some atmosphere, some decorations. You guys Mm. went all out. So walk us through, you know, the the venue, the menu, like the, the things that you guys offer, because it's not just one thing. It's multiple. uh... It's a lot.
3: Um, So the reason, I always wanted a Vietnamese restaurant, um, just not any Vietnamese restaurant. Uh, I wanted to bring a certain vibe. um, Like being, I wanted to bring like Vietnam to center city Philly or whatever city I was in at the time. Um, It happened to be Philadelphia. Um, So the guys that I work with, David and Kenny, they're very creative guys. So we wanted to elevate Vietnamese cooking other than, and, and, and the environment, the service from, you know, high quality stuff to everything. We just don't want to be, you know, don't get me wrong. Those mom and pop shops are probably what we learn from and are, are the best. Um, but we wanted to elevate like service. We wanted to elevate the, the, the meat, the, the cocktail program, um, everything we wanted to do and then give it a vibe. Because one thing we love to do in Vietnam is we love to, sing eat and drink all at the same time um it's a party while we're eating not just like sitting there you no know, you know don't get me wrong i do love those like five ten course tasting dinners but the way we do our food is like um it's it's family style um i never been a fan of eating one dish i always like to eat multiple dishes at one time variety is how we like to eat yeah um and have good cocktails and good beers and drink at the same time um, and then we're like, you know, why not? This is a beautiful spot. We want to do a little nightlife also. So we wanted to create this, like this lounge atmosphere where people, guys, girls have girls night out or guys night out to have like good cocktails and where we control the music, where it's not like too loud, where you can't have a conversation, um, <clears throat> and all that stuff. And also being in, in the neighborhood, uh, we wanted to represent the neighborhood. um, like my drink cocktail program who my consultant was uh, Jojo from uh, DC. Um, He helped me create the menu and each uh, color of the drink represents the LBGTQ flag of um, Philadelphia. Um, So it it was a lot going on. Um, Yeah,
0: (laughs) it was, it was definitely a lot going on. And um, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, like forgive my ignorance, but you know, I, I, Believe it's Lunar New Year, and I know that that's Chinese. Yes. But I, I, you know, I, I feel like I want to say Happy Lunar New Year, no, regardless to you to you as well, um, yes. just because it's probably you know not just the fact that you're in the neighborhood, you're very close to Chinatown too, and yes. um, and so I'm sure like it's bringing in a lot of of new people like who, you know, may or may not have had Vietnamese food and may or may not have had Vietnamese street food, but just, it's a huge, like, everybody's kind of just like, I want to celebrate. So, um, you, you guys offer a lot of different ways of celebrating. Yes. So I know that, uh, Gene is a chef and so, and he's been introduced to a, a variety of different cuisines and cultures. Um, and you know, So, and I have as well, I'm sorry, I'm like fighting, I'm fighting congestion, but, (laughs) um, but I love pho and I know I'm all over the place with my statements. Um I love pho and it's one of one of my favorite things to like s- settle down and celebrate or you know if I'm not feeling good I'll grab a bowl. You guys are do something interesting where for lunch you you offer a, like a regular size bowl but like for dinner options you you have like a small bowl. And that's also I'm assuming to encourage that family style eating.
3: Yeah. We don't want you to fill up on just one thing. We want to fill you up on a lot of different things, give a variety of food. We want you to get our purpose for that for thing was like, hey, this bowl of pho is so good for dinner. I want to come back for lunch to have it. Yeah. Um, you know, at the same time, we want people to, you know, in Vietnamese culture, there's more more than pho and banh mis and you know the everyday common stuff that everybody knows. We want to um, culture people, uh, teach people our, our culture of what else we eat other than those uh, those things that you know everybody knows which is probably the most delicious dishes but there's so many more delicious dishes out there
0: yeah and uh, correct me if i'm wrong but you do like a, a a take a different take on um a banh mi i believe but it's like a pancake like you do it in a pancake style i think
3: um for the banh mi um there's two different things that so i think the one that you're talking about the pancake style is called a banh kaw. Um it is a rice flour with turmeric and coconut uh, mm-hmm. milk and then we'd have a uh, flavored um, ground pork with uh, shrimp in it, and we dip it in our house-made fish sauce that my cousin makes up. And you know, every every family has a little different touch to their fish sauce.
0: Okay, so that it, but it's like uh, a secret, <laughs> probably a family yeah, secret. Everybody has their own little
3: secret, right? their mama's <laughs> secret. Yeah, they don't. No, the, everybody's mom's always better than everybody else's. <laughs>
0: of course. Yeah. And um, so what? What's one of your like favorite like? Because you've you guys have been out and in, you know, celebrated mm-hmm. again, again um, for a little bit at this point. What are some of your more popular dishes?
3: Um, our most popular dish were probably our um, the tip ball which is the shaky beef um it's we use um filet mignon meat so that's where we try to upscale it a lot of places use like ribeye or chuck meat and they tenderize in a different way we just went for the natural tenderization of using a high-end prime filet uh, meat it has like um oyster sauce soy sauce in it and a couple other seasonings that you know my cousin like doesn't like to throw out there um it comes with like ours you know everybody has their own little version ours comes with like onions cream peppers red peppers and and the special thing that whoever thought is to have salt and pepper and lime as a dipping sauce, but it enhances the flavors and make it totally different. Yeah,
0: it definitely does.
3: Uh, yeah, and then the other couple of nostalgic um, like dishes that brings that nostalgic feeling to me is like the uh, the ganjua, which is a sweet and sour tamarind soup, and has like fresh vegetables in it, like tomatoes, pineapples, um. Mushrooms and bean sprouts. Okay. Um, yeah,
0: and, and sounds delicious. As mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna revert back to the the lime with the salt and pepper. Um, mm-hmm. I, I believe I've had uh, several items in. Um, in Vietnamese, different Vietnamese restaurants. And one of the things that I surprised was, you know, I'm always interested in trying this, the sauces that, that they present in front of, in front of me, like, because I know it's meant to like enhance the flavor. So I know Mm -hmm. I've come across something similar. I don't believe that they, I've, I've ever had like the lime salt and pepper, but Uh I've definitely had like a vinegar salt and pepper.
3: Yes. Um, vinegar is all salt, pepper is all another that thing. That's also like, um, in the other cultures, like Filipino cultures does that the vinegar, salt, and pepper, um, you know, everybody has their own little twist of what it is. Yes. But there is also the vinegar one also.
0: Does that help to add like the breaking down or, I mean, not just enhancing the flavor itself, but also uh, does it help break down the the food while you're eating and digesting? I-
3: uh, you know what? I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, You're like, that one's out of my room. <laughs> out of my room. I just know that it's just like it changes the flavors in a very positive way. That's that's what how I look at it. Yeah.
0: So um, I'm going to dip into your cocktail menu a little bit more because I know that you do a cocktail per uh, color of the rainbow. But mm-hmm. I think it's also that you add in um, v- like wherever you can, you'll add in a Vietnamese liquor or um, I believe you use Vietnamese coffee in your espresso martinis.
3: Yeah. Espresso whey. Um, we do. Uh, we use our drip coffee. Um, so i I batched a drip coffee with a condensed milk and everything. Other using, like you know, normal espresso, we use the um uh, the, the, the coffee so it has like this natural sweet. not natural, but like it has the sweetness of the condensed milk, yeah, which is like different from the simple service when you do like a regular espresso martini, yeah. And it's not as um, like it's not as bitter, I think, as, as some espresso martinis could
0: be, yeah. I mean, well, the sweetened condensed milk definitely will take away the bitterness because, yeah, um, I've definitely I'm a fan of sweetened condensed milk and coffee.
3: <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it really <laughs> is. It's so. terrible, but it's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we um, do a little twist on a, a whipped cream. Okay. Um, we do uh, Chocolate bitters. And we make a chocolate bitters whipped cream. So it's still like a white whipped cream. We, uh, you know, swirl a little bit on top and we have like a little chocolate uh, praline, um, like one of those crispy wafer praline things. Okay, okay. Yeah, they garnish
0: it, yeah. Nice. Now, um, you, you mentioned the chocolate bitters, and I know that that goes into one of your your cocktails as well. I don't mm-hmm. think that it's the—I mean, maybe it is the the espresso one. Probably not, but um, I no, believe not, yeah. you have it in a version of an old-fashioned.
3: Yes. Um, it's called the Hang Sung— Don, I can't pronounce it properly myself either, um, and I'm Vietnamese. <laughs> um, um, so what that we did with that one, we took um, we took a bourbon and we infused it with um, uh, bacon fat, uh, a smoky bacon fat. Uh, we let it sit overnight, um, and then when the, the fat rises and kind of like thickens up a little bit, we take that and we scrape it off and we strain it. And then we did a orange maple simple syrup uh, or orange maple syrup, which is we take maple syrup and um, peel a bunch of orange uh, um, peel and let it infuse in there for about like two to three days um, to get that orange flavor out of it. And then we add chocolate bitters to it and then we swirl it up and it's garnished with a uh, chocolate covered bacon.
0: I don't know about Eugene, but I definitely want to try that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm game. I'm ready. Please stop by.
0: (laughs) I mean, I'll eat too, but that particular cocktail is right on my uh, my list of I have to have. (laughs) Um. So, you also offer karaoke in, um, I believe, drag shows, or at least that's the intention. If you haven't, you know, started in with those that part portion of the entertainment.
3: Um. Yes, we do have a, a private dining room with karaoke, and again. Um, if you go to, like, a lot of uh, Vietnamese house parties, they'll be eating, like, an egg roll or, like, a bowl of rice in one hand and then a beer, a Heineken or something on the other hand and then uh, be, like, mouthful and, and be singing while they're eating and drinking. <laughs> so we figured we'll, we'll bring that to the, the dining, the private dining room. It makes it fun, you know. People have dinner and then whoever's not eat, singing, they can eat and whoever's not eating can sing, you know. Yeah. Um, and then we also, um, we will be having drag shows, Our first one is planned on March 21st, I think, which is the first day of spring. So we're going to call it um, Miss uh, Saigon in uh, springtime. Um, So we're going to have like uh, four drag performers here. Um, We have a little, we we made a stage out front and everything so they can perform on the stage and be walking through and everything. So, yeah, so, and we're going to do it, um, like some of the proceeds will go to... um, the one group, of course, I can't think of it while we're talking about it. But, you know, um, some of the proceeds will definitely go towards a, a good cause.
0: Okay. I mean, I'm, and that's fair. I, and also very applaudable, too, because, I, you know, whenever you throw an event or do something for and put, you know, put it towards a good cause, it's that much more to celebrate. Um, but speaking of celebrating, how can our listeners celebrate you and your restaurant um, by finding you online and in person?
3: Yeah. Um, so we are located in center city, Philadelphia, 1316 Walnut Street. Um, you can find us on uh, Instagram, which is uh, Miss Saigon Philly. And our website is Miss Saigon All
0: right. Thank you so much for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs Chung.
3: Thank you so much for having me. Hope to see you all soon.
0: All right. And we will be right back after this short break. Join us on Food Farms and Chefs Radio Show, where we highlight everyone from top industry leaders to startups and the farmers who make it all possible with co-hosts Jean Blom and Amaris Pollack. With original episodes that debut every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on WWDB, 97.5 HD2, and at WWDBAM.com. And on your smart speaker. Hi, and welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. And I am here in studio, which is a rare occasion. So thank you for joining us, Gizm White, who is the owner, founder, and CEO of Turkish Coffee Lady.
4: Hi there.
0: Hi. So um, you have had quite a journey. Um, and introducing Turkish coffee to everyone, but it's not that it's something new. It's something that's been around for a very long time, True. Um, but does not get the, the accolades that it is well-deserved to have. And, you know, you've been kind of a liaison between um, the gastro-diplomacy gastro, gastro diplomacy. Diplomacy, um, in the U.S. and in other countries as well. So, let our listeners know a little bit about your history and you know what brought you to introducing Turkish coffee or reintroducing Turkish coffee to to everyone to the world.
4: Of course, it will be my pleasure, and thank you again for having me on the show. This is very exciting. So, I'm a social coffee entrepreneur. I bring people together um, through coffee conversations, cuisine, culinary arts. And I've been doing this for the past 15 years. Um, What really started this mission is when I was studying in the US um, as a grad student. I realized that Americans love their morning coffee. And Turks, you know, we have this 500 year old coffee culture. And unfortunately, the awareness for my home country was very low. And I realized that food can be a very strong communication tool, a connector. And, you know, I started like hosting some coffee events and people really enjoyed like experiencing that culture. So I decided to make this my full mission. And I actually started um, building a website, like a digital, you know, coffee house where people could just like, you know, kind of exchange their ideas. But at the same time, learn more about the culture. And we started building a community. Yeah, and they were asking about like how we can, you know, drink Turkish coffee, how I can like make it at home, and I was working at the embassy at that time, and I asked the ambassador if I could host a big coffee event, and the response was just remarkable. Yeah, uh, people really enjoyed, you know, this cultural experience, you know, the conversation around it, the Turkish delights, you know, the entire culinary experience. So I had another one after Washington, D.C. in New York. Okay. And that also drew some media attention. And I started realizing the potential of this incredible beverage. And I quit my job at the embassy. And I uh, started voluntarily just traveling around the United States uh, with a Turkish coffee truck.
0: <laughs> Which is an amazing. Were you scared, to, like, quitting your job at the embassy? Because that's, I mean, that's clearly a job that's a very steady, stable job. And then you know, starting out a food truck or a traveling um, coffee truck, if you will. And it's not just that you were doing that. It was that you were also going out and, and giving these coffees away for
4: free. Mm-hmm. So uh, where, who funded that? Like, how were you able to sustain that? That's a great question. See, this is the power of community because I've been very active in my local Turkish American community, and they said they will support me. And I started uh, fundraising through some, you know, companies, through some local associations, even like some, you know, individual donors. And I was able to raise like 60K and I was able to rent the truck. I was able to wrap it. And I had this like big army of volunteers traveling (laughs) with me. It was so much fun. The thing is, you know, um, there is a saying in Turkish that, you know, once you offer a cup of coffee to someone it binds a friendship, a long-term friendship. So that was the whole idea, like making new friends, sample some coffee, you know, enjoy the conversation. So people loved it because it was nonprofit, it was volunteer-led, we had lines, (laughs) uh, long lines for free coffee. And then when I was um, done with the tour, I started getting a lot of interest from other countries. Like people are emailing me, calling me, like, bring the truck here, like, Europe even like, you know, uh, Canada, so many places. And I said, like, well, this is not my full-time job, you know. (laughs) I don't have the truck, it's a rental. (laughs) 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 Yeah. It's not in my garage. Um, But, you know, I realized that I really wanted to do this for the rest of my life. I loved it. And I consider myself as a gastro diplomat. Again, food is so powerful. And um, it really breaks down, you know, barriers. You know, the culture is what defines us as humans and um, I'm so passionate about my own cultural heritage and not everyone knows but Turkish coffee is actually the world's oldest coffee brewing technique. It's not a coffee type, it's not a coffee bean, it is a brewing technique and um, it really started a culture during the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century, it was spread to Europe and uh, we're drinking coffee today because Turks invented that method of brewing coffee 500 years ago. Yeah. Now,
0: uh, I know that, Gene, you you are obviously another coffee drinker. I am an adamant coffee drinker as well. I've only physically seen the Turkish coffee uh, brewed one time. Have you ever seen it brewed?
2: I have. I've actually enjoyed and uh, been part of a... Uh, Turkish coffee experience in class when I was teaching. It was something we would do every year. Uh, and it's it's such a wonderful because while it is a technique, as you explained, and it's not a bean or a flavor or anything like that, it's actually, you know, like it's, it's a lifestyle. It's a communication. It's a ceremony. It's very similar to, you know, when you – learn the art of Japanese tea ceremony. You know, that is what Turkish coffee represents to me. It's the coming together of friends and family uh, over, you know, a, a technique and pass down from generation to generation. You know, the younger adult, the young children learn by watching the, you know, the adults do it. And it, it is so much more than just, you know, a cup of coffee. Thank you.
4: Exactly.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So um Jean I don't know if you can see cuz I know I you usually talk on your phone um she has brought a several a, a, a big basket full of several treats and for our listeners on on the radio show um that's you know for you as well so, because you don't have the visual but later on they'll have the visual um on YouTube
4: so can you go over some of the things that are in this basket Absolutely So, um, Turks are known for their hospitality, (laughs) (laughs) and because it's, you know, Valentine's Day uh, week, I wanted to uh, offer you some Turkish goodies. First, we have our special Valentine's Day blend, which is a pistachio-flavored Turkish coffee. It's yum. Uh, We have, of course, our evil eyes, you know, for protection and strength. I brought Cezve, the uh, the copper pot, um, you know, to make Turkish coffee. We have some homemade cookies, uh, loved flavored. We have the Turkish delights and we have the Turkish chocolates. And of course, you know, our Demitas Turkish coffee cups to enjoy the ritual. Which is beautiful. (laughs) So I thank
0: you for that. Um, Now, I've seen Turkish coffee coffee be made at at one point. And Jean, if you've done the classes for it, I know that there's like a sand or something to that matter that you move it around in. So what is
4: the process exactly for our listeners out there? This is It's a question for me? Yes. Yes. Okay. So Turkish coffee is a slow cooking method. And uh, let me just give you a little bit of background because, you know, coffee was first discovered in Ethiopia in the 10th century. Um, and it was brought to Yemen where they were boiling the coffee beans. Um, The Özdemir Pasha, uh, who was representing uh, Ottoman Empire in Yemen, he brought the coffee beans to the sultan. And the sultan loved the smell and the flavor and they started like, you know, cooking the coffee beans. But Turks were the first ones to uh, roast and grind the coffee beans for the very first time. So, they needed a pot to cook the coffee. Okay. So, this is actually like mother of coffee, like this started everything, really. Yes. And it is still in use today. So the cooking is really easy. It's like instant coffee. All you need is a couple tools. Uh, of course, a copper pot or a breast pot, or you can do a stainless steel pot. It's up to you. So you need water, obviously. You need to very finely grind coffee, okay. even finer than espresso. It's like a powder. And you can add some sugar if you like. And uh, you can have some like Turkish delights on the side. But... What you really need to do is the measurement. That's the key okay. for Turkish coffee. So let's say this is your cup. Yes. So you fill this cup to the top with uh, cold water. Okay. And then you pour it into the pot. And then one dessert spoonful of coffee. And if you like, you know, you can add some sugar. And you stir that mixture over very low heat. Okay. So it's going to throw it up. It's going to create some bubbles on top. And that's the key for Turkish coffee, the thick foam. The coffee is unfiltered. Basically, you'll be drinking the coffee grinds. That's why, <laughs> that's that's why you why have to have it so it fine. It feels so strong, <laughs> but it's so flavorful. But you know what? You're getting all the vitamins from the coffee beans. It's an antioxidant. So uh, it takes a like couple minutes, the whole process. But when the um, coffee you know, comes to a boil, you remove it from the stove and you gently pour it into the cup so the foam stays on top very, very cool
0: and very interesting. So you don't necessarily need, the because the sand causes that friction, that heat. Right. Um, so you don't necessarily need that. I can do that on top of my stove. Yes, yeah, so
4: obviously, you know, at that time, they didn't have power, electricity. So they were brewing the coffee on hot uh, ash or sand because it captures the heat. And you can actually control the overflow. So, you know, you can do it on the stove, you can do it on an electrical stove, it doesn't matter. It's just as long as you use this kind of a pot, you will get a lot of foam. Yeah. And one uh, tip here for first-timers, because, you know, you need some practice to make it perfect, you can use actually sparkling water to Oh. make it really foamy. Oh, I like the foamy thing. <laughs> right. Um,
0: so... I, one of the things actually before before you had arrived and everything, I had talked to our our sound tech um, about the fact that this is more potent than just having an espresso shot, mm-hmm. and now I know why it 's because you 're still also ingesting the, the ground up coffee now is this the the coffee that
4: you brought is that pre come does that come pre ground Yes, so this is ground coffee. But it's uh, much lighter than okay. the traditional taste. This is my own blend. I have a couple different flavors. Like the very strong one, I call it Istanbul. Okay. Um, it's jet fuel. Like it's the <laughs> energizer, it's immune booster. You know, it's going to be like, pick me up coffee. But not everyone, you know, will enjoy that kind of a um, strong coffee. So I have a couple different blends. One of them is very popular. It's called Mardin. Okay. It's a historical city in Turkey. It's very diverse. And it has like pistachio, almond, chocolate, caramel, cardamom, Ooh, all the good delicious. stuff. It's just so good. Yeah. And uh, I have a couple blends with just cardamom or mastic gum. So this one is a special blend. Um, I think you will enjoy it, you know, well, and you can drink it uh, all day long. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you said
0: that it has pistachio in it, which I love pistachio. So, Damn, and I go. am somebody that loves that jet fuel kind oh, really? of coffee. <laughs> yeah, like um, my friends know that when I go out to to get coffee, I'm like the Italian dark roast. Mm-hmm. Like the darker, like the better for me. Um, but I love. I have actually taken to um, having the flavor of pistachio in it just because it brings
4: like a lighter, airy taste. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, this is a cultural experience. It's not like a to go kind of coffee. It's not a caffeine rush. Like, this is a self care moment. Yeah. You know, like you're experiencing something like a culinary delight. <laughs> so, um, you should just make it very special. And, and it,
0: yes, it will be very uh, special.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I believe that Jean might have a
0: question for you as well. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, in your travels and, and, You know, teaching people coffee, one of the things that you successfully done, which is something we talk about on the show all the time, about using the power of food and beverage and and wine and spirits and everything like that to bring people together and to communicate and teach and have people realize that, you know, no matter our nationality, no matter our culture, we're all – kind of bonded by common things such as food and breaking bread and those relationships. And you went on to do a little education in that, a documentary, some, uh, you know, some teaching systems about that. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that whole world?
4: Absolutely. Um, Just would like to tell you a very short story because it really started um, with my grandmother and she's my hero uh, I admire brave women. You know, women <coughs> are unfortunately, you know, underestimated in today's world. And there's so many women out there trying to make it, they're trying to make a difference um, despite all the challenges, you know, and the roadblocks. My grandma was one of them, and she wanted to connect me at a very young age with my heritage. Yes. and she introduced me to Turkish coffee culture and we can actually uh, drink it with milk. So I started at a very early age, and she had a friend who was a brilliant artist, and she was reading the coffee grinds. So Turkish coffee is the only type of coffee that actually can predict the future. So she was so gifted, she was able to read my future from the coffee grinds, and it was a fascinating world. I loved it, and I remember this uh, to this day. Um, coffee connects people. Um, food is very powerful; it builds trusts, and it's been, you know, like this for centuries. It's been a very powerful tool for diplomacy. And when I started this project, um, no one believed me. No one really encouraged me to really, you know, rent a truck, travel around, distribute thousands of coffee. But my grandma did. So I'm just so grateful for having her as a role model. But um, during my first uh, truck tour, it was just such a unique experience, like once in a lifetime experience that even people with big you know, differences, um, they were coming to me and they were saying like, we admire what you do. You do bring people together over their mutual love for coffee. And there's no politics here. You know, there is no discussion, no argument. It's just friendship. Yes. And that's why I think the project got um, featured on so many major news outlets because this was just to build um, trust between communities, between societies. And when I traveled to Europe, you know, it was a completely different experience, a different culture, different people. But you know what? I learned so much from them. And I brought that knowledge into my business. Um, I went to Canada in 2016 and I was pregnant at that time. I was expecting my baby girl and you know what happened? I was with my truck outside of a, a shopping mall and I was distributing free coffee and I went inside and I saw this espresso shop. It's like tiny, you know, corner shop and people were waiting in lines and I realized, you know what? I love what I do, but I should do this more professionally. Like I have to start from somewhere and build, you know, a chain for Turkish coffee because I think people, they want Turkish coffee in their daily lives just like they do it um, with espresso. Yes. So I came back to D.C. I quit my job at the World Bank. <laughs> I, you know, continuously quitting my jobs over my passion. But um, I learned so much from those tours that I built my business on trust. My small business is a focused on, like, fostering cross-cultural communication between people. And when I first opened my shop, uh, people were telling me, like, you know, I mean, you were distributing free coffee. Of course, it was popular, but now you're selling the coffee. It's going to be different. You know what? It was even better.
0: Yeah. And I hate to interrupt you because um obviously your story and your history and everything that you've done is is making waves and um impacting everybody's lives in a very positive way. Thank you. But unfortunately, we are running out of time. So um
4: where can our listeners follow you, support sure. you, find your products? Of course. So they can follow me on social media. Uh, my handle is Turkish Coffee Lady. They can visit TurkishCoffeelady.com. Uh, You know, they can also um, visit our Facebook page, the same handle, and hopefully enjoy our travels and come visit our shop at uh, Old Town Alexandria and enjoy Turkish coffee experience.
0: Thank you so much for joining us.
4: It was a pleasure. (laughs)
0: Um, and hopefully I'll be able to bring you back on on another time. And maybe we can do a little bit of a, a show so people can Sounds see. Sounds good. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No problem. Um, and Jean, do you want to say goodbye?
2: I do want to say goodbye. Thank you very much. I love what you're doing.
4: Thank I you so it's much. Pleasure so talking world. to you. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. And uh, we
0: will be back every single week with a brand new episode of Food Farms and Chefs. So tune in on WWDB WPEN at 6 p.m. on Tuesdays and WMLD 1037 FM on Fridays at 1 p.m.
1: To listen to the rest of Food Farms and Chefs, tune your HD radio to 97.5 WPEN HD2 or stream live from WWDBAM.com.